Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be continuing the story of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. So lie down, close your eyes. And let me read you a story. Chapter 3 The next thing I remember is waking up with a feeling as if I had had a frightful nightmare and seeing before me a terrible red glare crossed with thick black bars. I heard voices too, speaking with a hollow sound and as if muffled by a rush of wind or water, agitation, uncertainty, and an all-predominating sense of terror confused my faculties. Ere long, I became aware that someone was handling me, lifting me up and supporting me in a sitting posture, and that more tenderly than I had ever been raised or upheld before. I rested my head against a pillow or an arm and felt easy. In five minutes more, the cloud of bewilderment dissolved, and I knew quite well that I was in my own bed, and that the red glare was the nursery fire. It was night, a candle burnt on the table. Bessie stood at the bedfoot with a basin in her hand, and a gentleman sat in a chair near my pillow, leaning over me. I felt an inexpressible relief a soothing conviction of protection and security when I knew that there was a stranger in the room, an individual not belonging to Gateshead and not related to Mrs. Reed. Turning from Bessie, though her presence was 
far less obnoxious to me than that of Abbott, for instance, would have been. I scrutinized the face of the gentleman. I knew him. It was Mr. Lloyd, an apothecary. Sometimes called in by Mrs. Reed when the servants were ailing. For herself and the children, she employed a physician. Well, who am I? he asked. I pronounced his name, offering him at the same time my hand. He took it, smiling and saying, We shall do very well by and by. Then he laid me down and, addressing Bessie, charged her to be very careful that I was not disturbed during the night. Having given some further directions and intimates that he should call again the next day, he departed to my grief. I felt so sheltered and befriended while he sat in the chair near my pillow. And as he closed the door after him, all the room darkened, and my heart again sank. Inexpressible sadness weighed it down. Do you feel as if you should sleep, miss? asked Bessie rather softly. Scarcely dared I answer her, for I feared the next sentence might be rough. I will try. Would you like to drink, or could you eat anything? No, thank you, Bessie. Then I think I shall go to bed, for it is past twelve o'clock, but you may call me if you want anything in the night. Wonderful civility, this. It emboldened me to ask a question. Bessie, what is the matter with me? Am I ill? You fell sick, I suppose, in the red room with crying. You'll be better soon, no doubt. Bessie went into the housemaid's apartment, which was near. I heard her say, Sarah, come and sleep with me in the nursery. I daren't for my life be alone with that poor child tonight. She might die. I wonder if she saw anything. Mrs. was rather too hard. Sarah came back with her. They both went to bed. They were whispering together for half an hour before they fell asleep. I caught scraps of their conversation, from which I was able only too distinctly to infer the main subject discussed. Something passed her, all dressed in white and vanished. A great black dog behind him. Three loud raps on the chamber door. A light in the churchyard just over his grave. Etc., etc. At last, both fell asleep. The fire and the candle went out. For me, the watches of that long night passed in ghastly wakefulness, strained by dread, such dread as children only can feel. No severe or prolonged bodily illness followed this incident of the Red Room. It only gave my nerves a shock of which I feel the reverberation to this day. Yes, Mrs. Reed, to you I owe some fearful pangs of mental suffering. But I ought to forgive you for you knew not what you did, while rending my heartstrings, you thought you were only uprooting my bad propensities. Next day by noon, I was up and dressed, and sat wrapped in a shawl by the nursery hearth. I felt physically weak and broken down, but my worst ailment was an unutterable wretchedness of mind, a wretchedness which kept drawing from me silent tears. No sooner had I wiped one salt drop from my cheek then another followed. Yet I thought I ought to have been happy, for none of the reeds were there. They were all gone out in the carriage with their mamma. Abbot, too, was sewing in another room. And Bessie, as she moved hither and thither, putting away toys and arranging drawers, addressed to me every now and then a word of unwanted kindness. This state of things should have been to me a paradise of peace, a custom as I was to a life of ceaseless reprimand. But in fact, my racked nerves were now in such a state that no calm could soothe and no pleasure excite them agreeably. Bessie had been down into the kitchen and she brought up with her a tart on a certain brightly painted china plate whose bird of paradise, nestling in a wreath of convolvuli and rosebuds, had been wont to stir in me a most enthusiastic sense of admiration and which plate I had often petitioned to be allowed to take in my hand in order to examine it more closely, but had always hitherto been deemed unworthy of such a privilege. This precious vessel was now placed on my knee, and I was cordially invited to eat the circlet of delicate pastry upon it. 
vain favor, coming like most other favors, long deferred and often wished for, too late. I could not eat the tart, and the plumage of the bird, the tints of the flowers seemed strangely faded. I put both plate and tart away. Bessie asked if I would have a book. The word book acted as a transient stimulus, and I begged her to fetch Gulliver's Travels from the library. This book I had again and again perused with delight. I considered it a narrative of facts, and discovered in it a vein of interest, deeper than what I found in fairy tales. For as to the elves, having sought them in vain among foxglove leaves and bells, under mushrooms and beneath the ground ivy mantling old walnuts, I had at length made up my mind to the sad truth that they were all gone out of England to some savage country where the woods were wilder and thicker and the population more scant. Whereas Lilliput and Robdenag being, in my creed, solid parts of the earth's surface, I doubted not that I might one day, by taking a long voyage, see with my own eyes the little fields, houses and trees, the diminutive people, the tiny cows, sheep and birds of the one realm, and the cornfields, forest high, the mighty mastiffs, the monster cats, the tower-like men and women of the other. Yet when this cherished volume was now placed in my hand, when I turned over its leaves and sought in its marvellous pictures the charm I had till now never failed to find, all was eerie and dreary. The giants were gaunt goblins, the pygmies malevolent and fearful imps, Gulliver a most desolate wanderer in most dread and dangerous regions. I closed the book, which I dared no longer peruse, and put it on the table beside the untasted tart. Bessie had now finished dusting and tidying the room, and having washed her hands, she opened a certain little drawer full of splendid shreds of silk and satin, and began making a new bonnet for Georgiana's doll. Meantime, she sang. I had often heard the song before, and always with a lively delight, for Bessie had a sweet voice, at least I thought so. But now, though her voice was still sweet, I found in its melody an indescribable sadness. Sometimes preoccupied with her work, she sang the refrain very low, very lingeringly. A long time ago came out like the saddest cadence of a funeral hymn. She passed into another ballad this time a really doleful one. Come, Miss Jane, don't cry, said Bessie as she finished. She might as well have said to the fire, don't burn. But how could she divine the morbid suffering to which I was a prey? In the course of the morning, Mr. Lloyd came again. What, up already? said he, as he entered the nursery. Well, nurse, how is she? Bessie answered that I was doing very well then she ought to look more cheerful. Come on, Miss Jane. Your name is Jane, is it not? Yes, sir, Jane Eyre. Well, you've been crying, Miss Jane Eyre. Can you tell me what about? Have you any pain? No, sir. Oh, I dare say she is crying because she could not go out with Missus in the carriage, interposed Bessie. Surely not. Why, she's too old for such pettishness. I thought so, too and my self-esteem being wounded by the false charge, I answered promptly. I never cried for such a thing in my life. I hate going out in the carriage. I cry because I'm miserable. Oh, fie, miss, said Bessie. Mr. Lloyd appeared a little puzzled. I was standing before him. He fixed his eyes on me very steadily. His eyes were small and grey, not very bright, but I dare say I should think them shrewd now. He had a hard-featured yet good-natured-looking face. Having considered me at leisure, he said, What made you ill yesterday? She had a fall, said Bessie, again putting in her word. Fall? Why, that is like a baby again. Can't she manage to walk at her age? She must be eight or nine years old. I was knocked down, was a blunt explanation, jerked out of me by another pang of mortified pride. But that did not make me ill, I added, while Mr. Lloyd helped himself to a pinch of snuff. As he was returning the box to his waistcoat pocket, a loud bell rang for the servant's dinner. He knew what it was. That's for you, nurse, said he. 
You can go down. I'll give Miss Jane a lecture till you come back. Bessie would have rather stayed, but she was obliged to go, because punctuality at meals was rigidly enforced at Gateshead Hall. The fall did not make you ill. What did then? pursued Mr. Lloyd when Bessie was gone. I was shut up in a room where there is a ghost till after dark. I saw Mr. Lloyd smile and frown at the same time. Ghost? What, you are a baby after all. You're afraid of ghosts? Of Mr. Reed's ghost I am. He died in that room and was laid out there. Neither Bessie nor anyone else will go into it at night if they can help it. And it was cruel to shut me up alone without a candle. So cruel that I think I shall never forget it. Nonsense. And is it that makes you so miserable? Are you afraid now in daylight? No, but night will come again before long. And besides, I am unhappy, very unhappy for other things. What other things? Can you tell me some of them? How much I wish to reply fully to this question. How difficult it was to frame any answer. Children can feel, but they cannot analyze their feelings. And if the analysis is partially affected in thought, they know not how to express the result of the process in words. Fearful, however, of losing this first and only opportunity of relieving my grief by imparting it, I, after a disturbed pause, contrived to frame a meager, though, as far as it went, true response. For one thing, I have no father or mother, brothers or sisters. You have a kind aunt and cousins. Again I paused, then bunglingly announced. But John Reed knocked me down, and my aunt shut me up in the red room. Mr. Lloyd a second time produced his snuff box. Don't you think Gateshead Hall is a very beautiful house? asked he. Are you not very thankful to have such a fine place to live at? It is not my house, sir, and Abbott says I have less right to be here than a servant. You can't be silly enough to wish to leave such a splendid place. If I had anywhere else to go, I should be glad to leave it, but I can never get away from Gateshead till I am a woman. Perhaps you may. Who knows? Have you any relations besides Mrs. Reed? I think not, sir. None belonging to your father? I don't know. I asked Aunt Reed once and she said possibly I might have some poor or low relations called heir, but she knew nothing about them. If you had such, would you like to go to them? I reflected. Poverty looks grim to grown people, still more so to children. They have not much idea of industrious, working, respectable poverty. They think of the word only as connected with ragged clothes, scanty food, fireless grapes, rude manners and debasing vices. Poverty for me was synonymous with degradation. No, I should not like to belong to poor people, was my reply. Not even if they were kind to you? I shook my head. I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind. And then to learn to speak like them, to adopt their manners, to be uneducated, to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead. No, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste. But are your relatives so very poor? Are they working people? I cannot tell. Aunt Reese says if I have any, they must be a beggarly set. I should not like to go a-begging. Would you like to go to school? Again, I reflected. I scarcely knew what school was. Bessie sometimes spoke of it as a place where young ladies sat in the stocks, wore backboards, and were expected to be exceedingly genteel and precise. John Reed hated his school and abused his master. But John Reed's tastes were no rule for mine, and if Bessie's accounts of school discipline, gathered from the young ladies of a family where she had lived before coming to Gateshead, were somewhat appalling, her details of certain accomplishments attained by these same young ladies were, I thought, equally attractive. 
she boasted of beautiful paintings of landscapes and flowers by them executed, of songs they could sing and pieces they could play, of purses they could net, of French books they could translate, till my spirit was moved to emulation as I listened. Besides, school would be a complete change. It implied a long journey, an entire separation from Gateshead, an entrance into a new life. I should indeed like to go to school, was the audible conclusion of my musings. Well, well, who knows what might happen, said Mr. Lloyd as he got up. The child ought to have a change of air and scene, he added, speaking to himself, nerves not in a good state. Bessie now returned. At the same moment the carriage was heard rolling up the gravel walk. Is that your mistress, nurse? asked Mr. Lloyd. I should like to speak to her before I go. Bessie invited him to walk into the breakfast room and led the way out. In the interview which followed between him and Mrs. Reed, I presume, from after occurrences, that the apothecary ventured to recommend my being sent to school and the recommendation was no doubt readily enough adopted, for, as Abbott said, in discussing the subject with Bessie when both sat sewing in the nursery one night after I was in bed, and, as they thought, asleep, Mrs. was, she dared say, glad enough to get rid of such a tiresome, ill-conditioned child who always looked as if she were watching everybody and scheming plots underhand. Abbott, I think, gave me credit for being a sort of infantine Guy Fawkes. On that same occasion, I learned, for the first time, from Miss Abbott's communications to Bessie, that my father had been a poor clergyman, that my mother had married him against the wishes of her friends, who considered the match beneath her, that my grandfather Reed was so irritated at her disobedience he cut her off without a shilling, that after my mother and father had been married a year, the latter caught the typhus fever while visiting among the poor of a large manufacturing town where his curacy was situated and where that disease was then prevalent, that my mother took the infection from him and both died within a month of each other. Bessie, when she heard this narrative, sighed and said, Poor Miss Jane is to be pitied too, Abbott. Yes, responded Abbott. If she were a nice, pretty child, one might feel compassion for her forlornness but one really cannot care for such a little toad as that. Not a great deal, to be sure, agreed Bessie. At any rate, a beauty like Miss Georgiana would be more moving in the same condition. Yes, I dote on Miss Georgiana, cried the fervent habit. Little darling, with her long curls and her blue eyes, and such a sweet colour as she is, just as if she were painted. Bessie, I could fancy a Welsh rabbit for dinner. So could I, with a roast onion. Come, we'll go down. They went. Chapter 4 From my discourse with Mr. Lloyd and from the above reported conference between Bessie and Abbott, I gathered enough hope to suffice as a motive for wishing to get well. A change seemed near. I desired and waited it in silence. It tarried, however. Days and weeks passed. I had regained my normal state of health, but no new allusion was made to the subject over which I brooded. Mrs. Reed surveyed me at times with a severe eye, but seldom addressed me. Since my illness, she had drawn a more marked line of separation than ever between me and her own children, appointing me a small closet to sleep in by myself, condemning me to take my meals alone and pass all my time in the nursery while my cousins were constantly in the drawing room. Not a hint, however, did she drop about sending me to school. Still, I felt an instinctive certainty that she would not long endure me under the same roof with her. For her glance, now more than ever, when turned on me, expressed an insuperable and rooted aversion. Eliza and Georgiana, evidently acting according to orders, spoke to me as little as possible. John thrust his tongue in his cheek whenever he saw me and once attempted chastisement. But as I instantly turned against him, roused by the same sentiment of deep ire and desperate revolt, which had stirred my corruption before, 
He thought it better to desist and ran from me uttering execrations and vowing I had burst his nose. I had indeed leveled at that prominent feature as hard a blow as my knuckles could inflict. And when I saw that either that or my look daunted him, I had the greatest inclination to follow up my advantage to purpose. But he was already with his mamma. I heard him in a blubbering tone commence the tale of how that nasty Jane Eyre had flown at him like a wild cat. He was stopped rather harshly. Don't talk to me about her, John. I told you not to go near her. She's not worthy of notice. I do not choose that either you or your sisters should associate with her. Here, leaning over the banister, I cried out suddenly, and without at all deliberating on my words, they are not fit to associate with me. Mrs. Reed was a rather stout woman, but on hearing this strange and audacious declaration, she ran nimbly up the stair, swept me like a whirlwind into the nursery, and crushing me down on the edge of my crib, dared me in an emphatic voice to raise from that place or utter one syllable during the rest of the day. What would Uncle Reed say to you if you were alive? was my scarcely voluntary demand. I say scarcely voluntary, for it seemed as if my tongue pronounced words without my will consenting to their utterance. Something spoke out of me over which I had no control. What? said Mrs. Reed, under her breath. Her usually cold, composed grey eye became troubled with a look like fear. She took her hand from my arm and gazed at me as if she really did not know whether I were child or fiend. I was now in for it. My Uncle Reed is in heaven, and can see all you do and think, and so can Papa and Mama. They know how you shut me up all day long, and how you wish me dead. Mrs. Reed soon rallied her spirits. She shook me most soundly, she boxed both my ears, and then left me without a word. Bessie supplied the hiatus by a homily of an hour's length, in which she proved beyond a doubt that I was the most wicked and abandoned child ever reared under a roof. I half believed her, for I felt indeed only bad feelings surging in my breast. November, December, and half of January passed away. Christmas and the New Year had been celebrated at Gateshead with the usual festive chair. Presents had been interchanged, dinners and evening parties given. From every enjoyment I was, of course, excluded. My share of the gaiety consisted in witnessing the daily apparelling of Eliza and Georgiana and seeing them descend to the drawing room, dressed out in thin muslin frocks and scarlet sashes, with hair elaborately ringleted, and afterwards, in listening to the sound of the piano or the harp played below, to the passing to and fro of the butler and footman, to the jingling of glass and china as refreshments were handed, to the broken hum of conversation as the drawing-room door opened and closed. When tired of this occupation, I would retire from the stairhead to the solitary and silent nursery. There, though somewhat sad, I was not miserable. To speak truth, I had not the least wish to go into company, for in company I was very rarely noticed, and if Bessie had but been kind and companionable, I should have deemed it a treat to spend the evenings quietly with her, instead of passing them under the formidable eye of Mrs. Reed in a room full of ladies and gentlemen. But Bessie, as soon as she had dressed her young ladies, used to take herself off to the lively regions of the kitchen and housekeeper's room, generally bearing the candle along with her. I then sat with my doll on my knee till the fire got low, glancing around occasionally to make sure that nothing worse than myself haunted the shadowy room. And when the embers sank to a dull red, I undressed hastily, tugging at knots and strings as I best might, and sought shelter from cold and darkness in my crib. To this crib I always took my doll. Human beings must love something, and in the dearth of worthier objects of affection, I contrived to find a pleasure in loving and cherishing a faded graven image, shabby as a miniature scarecrow. It puzzles me now to remember with what absurd sincerity I doted on this little toy, half fancying it alive and capable of sensation. 
I could not sleep unless it was folded in my nightgown. And when it lay there safe and warm, I was comparatively happy, believing it to be likewise. Long did the hours seem while I waited the departure of the company and listened for the sound of Bessie's step on the stairs. Sometimes she would come up in the interval to seek her thimble or her scissors, or perhaps to bring me something by way of supper, a bun or a cheesecake. Then she would sit on the bed while I ate it, and when I had finished, she would tuck the clothes around me, and twice she kissed me and said, Good night, Miss Jane. When thus gentle, Bessie seemed to me the best, prettiest, kindest being in the world, and I wished most intensely that she would always be so pleasant and amiable, and never push me about, or scold, or task me unreasonably, as she was too often wont to do. Bessie Lee must, I think, have been a girl of good natural capacity, for she was smart in all she did, and had a remarkable knack of narrative, so at least I judge from the impression made on me by her nursery tales. She was pretty too, if my recollections of her face and person are correct. I remember her as a slim young woman with black hair, dark eyes, very nice features and a good clear complexion, but she had a capricious and hasty temper and indifferent ideas of principle or justice. Still, such as she was, I preferred her to anyone else at Gateshead Hall. It was the 15th of January, about nine o'clock in the morning. Bessie was gone down to breakfast. My cousins had not yet been summoned to their mamma. Eliza was putting on her bonnet and warm garden coat to go and feed her poultry, an occupation of which she was fond, and not less so of selling the eggs to the housekeeper and hoarding up the money she thus obtained. She had a turn for traffic and a marked propensity for saving, shown not only in the vending of eggs and chickens, but also in driving hard bargains with the gardener about flower roots, seeds, and slips of plants. That functionary, having orders from Mrs. Reed, to buy of his young lady all the products of her parterre she wished to sell. And Eliza would have sold the hair off her head if she could have made a handsome profit thereby. As to her money, she first secreted it in odd corners, wrapped in a rag or an old curl paper. But some of these hoards, having been discovered by the housemaid, Eliza, fearful of one day losing her valued treasure, consented to entrust it to her mother at a usurious rate of interest, 50 or 60 percent, which interest she exacted every quarter, keeping her accounts in a little book with anxious accuracy. Georgiana sat on a high stool, dressing her hair at the glass and interweaving her curls with artificial flowers and faded feathers, of which she had found a store in a drawer in the attic. I was making my bed, having received strict orders from Bessie, to get it arranged before she returned, for Bessie now frequently employed me as a sort of under-nursery maid to tidy the room, dust the chairs, etc. Having spread the quilt and folded my nightdress, I went to the window seat to put in order some picture books and doll's house furniture scattered there. An abrupt command from Georgiana to let her play things alone, for the tiny chairs and mirrors, the fairy plates and cups were her property stopped my proceedings, and then, for lack of other occupation, I fell to breathing on the frost flowers with which the window was fretted, and thus clearing a space in the glass through which I might look out on the grounds, where all was still and petrified under the influence of a hard frost. From this window were visible the porter's lodge and the carriage road, and just as I had dissolved so much of the silver-white foliage veiling the panes, as left room to look out. I saw the gates thrown open and a carriage roll through. I watched it ascending the drive with indifference. Carriages often came to Gateshead, but none ever brought visitors in whom I was interested. It stopped in front of the house. The doorbell rang loudly. The newcomer was admitted. All this being nothing to me, my vacant attention soon found livelier attraction in the spectacle of a little hungry robin which came and chirped on the twigs of a leafless cherry tree nailed against the wall near the casement. The remains of my breakfast, of bread and milk, stood on the table, and having crumbled a morsel of roll, 
I was tugging at the sash to put out the crumbs on the windowsill when Bessie came running upstairs into the nursery. Miss Jane, take off your pinafore. What are you doing there? Have you washed your hands and face this morning? I gave another tug before I answered, for I wanted the bird to be secure of its bread. The sash yielded. I scattered the crumbs, some on the stone still, some on the cherry tree bough. Then closing the window, I replied, No, Bessie, I have only just finished dusting. Troublesome, careless child. And what are you doing now? You look quite red, as if you had been about some mischief. What were you opening the window for? I was spared the trouble of answering, for Bessie seemed in too great a hurry to listen to explanations. She hauled me to the washstand, inflicted a merciless but happily brief scrub on my face and hands with soap, water, and a coarse towel, disciplined my head with a bristly brush, denuded me of my pinafore, and then, hurrying me to the top of the stairs, bid me go down directly as I was wanted in the breakfast room. I would have asked who wanted me, I would have demanded if Mrs. Reed was there, but Bessie was already gone and had closed the nursery door upon me. I slowly descended. For nearly three months, I had never been called to Mrs. Reed's presence, restricted so long to the nursery, the breakfast, dining and drawing rooms, were become for me awful regions, on which it dismayed me to intrude. I now stood in the empty hall. Before me was the breakfast room door, and I stopped, intimidated and trembling. What a miserable little poltroon had fear, endangered of unjust punishment, made of me in those days. I feared to return to the nursery, and I feared to go forward to the parlour. Ten minutes I stood in agitated hesitation. The vehement ringing of the breakfast room bell decided me. I must enter. Who could want me? I asked inwardly as with both hands I turned the stiff door handle, which for a second or two resisted my efforts. What should I see besides Aunt Reed in the apartment? A man or a woman? The handle turned, the door unclosed, and passing through and curtsying low, I looked up at a black pillar. Such at least appeared to me at first sight, the straight, narrow, sable-clad shape standing erect on the rug. The grim face at the top was like a carved mask, placed above the shaft by way of capital. Mrs. Reed occupied her usual seat by the fireside. She made a signal to me to approach. I did so, and she introduced me to the stony stranger with the words, This is the little girl respecting whom I applied to you. He, for it was a man, turned his head slowly towards where I stood and having examined me with two inquisitive-looking grey eyes, which twinkled under a pair of bushy brows, said solemnly, and in a bass voice, Her size is small. What is her age? Ten years. So much, was the doubtful answer, and he prolonged his scrutiny for some minutes. Presently, he addressed me. Your name, little girl? Jane Eyre, sir. In uttering these words, I looked up. He seemed to me a tall gentleman, but then I was very little. His features were large, and they and all the lines of his frame were equally harsh and prim. Well, Jane Eyre, are you a good child? Impossible to reply to this in the affirmative, my little world held a contrary opinion. I was silent. Mrs. Reed answered for me by an expressive shake of the head, adding soon, Perhaps the less said on that subject the better, Mr. Brocklehurst. Sorry indeed to hear it. She and I must have some talk. And bending from the perpendicular, he installed his person in the armchair opposite Mrs. Reed's. Come here, he said. I stepped across the rug. He placed me square and straight before him. What a face he had now that it was almost level with mine. What a great nose, and what a mouth, and what large, prominent teeth. No sight so sad as that of a naughty child, he began, especially a naughty little girl. Do you know where the wicked go after death? They go to hell, 
was my ready and orthodox answer. And what is hell? Can you tell me that? A pit full of fire. And should you like to fall into that pit and to be burning there forever? No, sir. What must you do to avoid it? I deliberated a moment. My answer, when it did come, was objectionable. I must keep in good health and not die. How can you keep in good health? Children younger than you die daily. I buried a little child of five years old only a day or two since, a good little child whose soul is now in heaven. It is to be feared the same could not be said of you were you to be called hence. Not being in a condition to remove his doubt, I only cast my eyes down on the two large feet planted on the rug and sighed, wishing myself far enough away. I hope that sighs from the heart and that you repent of having ever been the occasion of discomfort to your excellent benefactress. Benefactress, benefactress, said I inwardly. They all call Mrs. Reed my benefactress. If so, a benefactress is a disagreeable thing. Do you say your prayers night and morning? Continued my interrogator. Yes, sir. Do you read your Bible? Sometimes. With pleasure? Are you fond of it? I like Revelations, and the book of Daniel, and Genesis and Samuel, and a little bit of Exodus, and some parts of Kings and Chronicles, and Job and Jonah, and the Psalms. I hope you like them. No, sir. No? Oh, shocking. I have a little boy, younger than you, who knows six psalms by heart. And when you asked him which he would rather have, a gingerbread nut to eat, or a verse of a psalm to learn, he says, Oh, the verse of a psalm. Angels sing psalms, he says. I wish to be a little angel here below. He then gets two nuts in recompense for his infant piety. Psalms are not interesting, I remarked. That proves you have a wicked heart, and you must pray to God to change it, to give you a new and clean one, to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I was about to propound a question touching the manner in which that operation of changing my heart was to be performed, when Mrs. Reed interposed, telling me to sit down. She then proceeded to carry on the conversation herself. Mr. Brocklehurst, I believe I intimated in the letter which I wrote to you three weeks ago that this little girl has not quite the character and disposition I could wish. Should you admit her into Lowood School, I should be glad if the superintendent and teachers were requested to keep a strict eye on her and, above all, to guard against her worst fault, a tendency to deceit. I mentioned this in your hearing, Jane that you may not attempt to impose on Mr. Brocklehurst. Well, might I dread, well, might I dislike Mrs. Reed, for it was her nature to wound me cruelly. Never was I happy in her presence, however carefully I obeyed, however strenuously I strove to please her. My efforts were still repulsed and repaid by such sentences as the above. Now, uttered before a stranger, the accusation cut me to the heart. I dimly perceived that she was already obliterating hope from the new phase of existence which she destined me to enter. I felt, though I could not have expressed the feeling, that she was sowing aversion and unkindness along my future path. I saw myself transformed under Mr. Brocklehurst's eye into an artful, noxious child. And what could I do to remedy the injury? Nothing indeed, thought I, as I struggled to repress a sob and hastily wiped away some tears, the impotent evidences of my anguish. Deceit is indeed a sad fault in a child, said Mr. Brocklehurst. It is akin to falsehood, and all liars will have their portion in the lake burning with fire and brimstone. She shall, however, be watched, Mrs. Reed. I will speak to Miss Temple and the teachers. I should wish her to be brought up in a manner suiting her prospects, continued my benefactress to be made useful, to be kept humble. As for the vacations, she will, with your permission, spend them always at Lowood. Your decisions are perfectly judicious, madam, returned Mr. Brocklehurst. Humility is a Christian grace, and one peculiarly appropriate 
to the pupils of Lowood. I, therefore, direct that special care shall be bestowed on its cultivation amongst them. I have studied how best to mortify in them the worldly sentiment of pride, and only the other day I had a pleasing proof of my success. My second daughter, Augusta, went with her mamma to visit the school, and on her return she exclaimed, Oh, dear papa, how quiet and plain all the girls at Lowood look, with their hair combed behind their ears and their long pinafores and those little holland pockets outside their frocks. They are almost like poor people's children. And, said she, they looked at my dress and mamma's as if they had never seen a silk gown before. This is the state of things I quite approve, returned Mrs. Reed. Had I sought all England over, I could scarcely have found a system more exactly fitting a child like Jane Eyre. Consistency, my dear Mr. Brocklehurst, I advocate consistency in all things. Consistency, madam, is the first of Christian duties, and it has been observed in every arrangement connected with the establishment of Lowood. Plain fare, simple attire, unsophisticated accommodations, hardy and active habits. Such is the order of the day in the house and its inhabitants. Quite right, sir. I may then depend upon this child being received as a pupil at Lowood, and there being trained in conformity to her position and prospects. Madam, you may. She shall be placed in that nursery of chosen plants. I trust she will show herself grateful for the privilege of her election. I will send her then, as soon as possible, Mr. Brocklehurst, for I assure you, I feel anxious to be relieved of responsibility that was becoming too irksome. No doubt, no doubt, madam. And now I wish you good morning. I shall return to Brocklehurst Hall in the course of a week or two. My good friend, the Archdeacon, will not permit me to leave him sooner. I shall send Miss Temple notice that she is to expect a new girl, so that there will be no difficulty about receiving her. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Brocklehurst. Remember me to Mrs. and Miss Brocklehurst, and to Augusta and Theodore, and Mr. Broughton Brocklehurst. I will, madame. Little girl, here is a book entitled The Child's Guide. Read it with prayer, especially that part containing an account of the awfully sudden death of Martha, a naughty child addicted to falsehood and deceit. With these words, Mr. Brocklehurst put into my hand a thin pamphlet sewn in a cover, and having rung for his carriage, he departed. Mrs. Reed and I were left alone. Some minutes passed in silence. She was sewing. I was watching her. Mrs. Reed might be at that time some six or seven and thirty. She was a woman of robust frame, square-shouldered and strong-limbed, not tall, and though stout, not obese. She had a somewhat large face, the underjaw being much developed and very solid. Her brow was low, her chin large and prominent, mouth and nose sufficiently regular. Under her light eyebrows glimmered an eye devoid of ruth. Her skin was dark and opaque, her hair nearly flaxen, her constitution was sound as a bell. Illness never came near her. She was an exact, clever manager. Her household and tenantry were thoroughly under her control. Her children only at times defied her authority and laughed it to scorn. She dressed well and had a presence in port calculated to set off handsome attire. Sitting on a low stool a few yards from her armchair, I examined her figure. I perused her features. In my hand I held the tract containing the sudden death of the liar, to which narrative my attention had been pointed as to an appropriate warning. What had just passed, what Mrs. Reed had said concerning me to Mr. Brocklehurst, the whole tenor of their conversation, was recent, raw, and stinging in my mind. I had felt every word as acutely as I had heard it plainly, and a passion of resentment fomented now within me. Mrs. Reed looked up from her work. Her eyes settled on mine. Her fingers at the same time suspended their nimble movements. Go out of the room. Return to the nursery. Was her mandate. My look or something else must have struck her as offensive, for she spoke with extreme though suppressed irritation. I got up, 
I went to the door. I came back again. I walked to the window, across the room, then close up to her. Speak, I must. I had been trodden on severely and must turn, but how? What strength had I to dart retaliation at my antagonist? I gathered my energies and launched them in this blunt sentence. I am not deceitful. If I were, I should say I loved you, but I declare I do not love you. I dislike you the worst of anybody in the world except John Reed. And this book about the liar, you may give it to your girl, Georgiana, for it is she who tells lies and not I. Mrs. Reed's hand still lay on her work inactive. Her eye of ice continued to dwell freezingly on mine. What more have you to say, she asked, rather in the tone in which a person might address an opponent of adult age than such as is ordinarily used to a child. That eye of hers, that voice stirred every antipathy I had. Shaking from head to foot, thrilled with ungovernable excitement, I continued, I am glad you are no relation of mine. I will never call you aunt again as long as I live. I will never come to see you when I am grown up. And if anyone asks me how I liked you and how you treated me, I will say the very thought of you makes me sick and you treated me with miserable cruelty. How dare you affirm that, Jane Eyre? How dare I, Mrs. Reed? How dare I? Because it is the truth. You think I have no feelings, and I can do without one bit of love or kindness, but I cannot live so, and you have no pity. I shall remember how you thrust me back, roughly and violently thrust me back into the red room, and locked me up there to my dying day, though I was in agony, though I cried out while suffocating with the distress. Have mercy, have mercy, Aunt Reed. And that punishment you made me suffer, because your wicked boy struck me, knocked me down for nothing. I will tell anybody who asks me questions this exact tale. People think you are a good woman, but you are bad, hard-hearted. You are deceitful. Ere had I finished this reply, my soul began to expand, to exult, with the strangest sense of freedom, of triumph I ever felt. It seemed as if an invisible bond had burst, and that I had struggled out into unhoped-for liberty. Not without cause was this sentiment. Mrs. Reed looked frightened. Her work had slipped from her knee. She was lifting up her hands, rocking herself to and fro, and even twisting her face as if she would cry. Jane, you are under a mistake. What is the matter with you? Why do you tremble so violently? Would you like to drink some water? No, Mrs. Reed. Is there anything else you wish for, Jane? I assure you I desire to be your friend. Not you. You told Mr. Brocklehurst I had a bad character, a deceitful disposition, and I'll let everyone at Lowood know what you are and what you have done. Jane, you don't understand these things. Children must be corrected for their faults. Deceit is not my fault, I cried out in a savage high voice. But you are passionate, Jane. That you must allow. And now return to the nursery, there's a dare, and lie down a little. I am not your dare. I cannot lie down. Send me to school soon, Mrs. Reed, for I hate to live here. I will indeed send her to school soon, murmured Mrs. Reed, and gathering up her work, she abruptly quitted the apartment. I was left there alone, winner of the field. It was the hardest battle I had fought, and the first victory I had gained. I stood a while on the rug where Mr. Brocklehurst had stood and enjoyed my conqueror's solitude. First, I smiled to myself and felt elate, but this fierce pleasure subsided in me as fast as did the accelerated throb of my pulses. A child cannot quarrel with its elders as I had done, cannot give its furious feelings uncontrolled play as I had given mine, without experiencing afterwards the pang of remorse and the chill of reaction. A ridge of lighted heath, alive, glancing, devouring, would have been an emblem of my mind when I accused and menaced Mrs. Reed. The same ridge, black and blasted after the flames were dead, would have represented as meetly my subsequent condition when half an hour's silence and reflection had showed me the madness of my conduct and the dreariness of my hated and hating position. Something of vengeance I had tasted for the first time as aromatic wine, it seemed, on swallowing, warm and racy, its afterflavor, metallic and corroded. 
giving me a sensation as if I had been poisoned. Willingly would I now have gone and asked Mrs. Reed's pardon, but I knew, partly from experience and partly from instinct, that was the way to make her repulse me with double scorn, thereby re-exciting every turbulent impulse of my nature. I would fain exercise some better faculty than that of fair speaking, fain find nourishment for some less fiendish feeling than that of sombre indignation. I took a book, some Arabian tales. I sat down and endeavoured to read. I could make no sense of the subject. My own thoughts swam, always between me and the page I had usually found fascinating. I opened the glass door in the breakfast room. The shrubbery was quite still. The black frost reigned, unbroken by sun or breeze, through the grounds. I covered my head and arms with the skirt of my frock and went out to walk in a part of the plantation which was quite sequestered. But I found no pleasure in the silent trees, the falling fir cones, the congealed relics of autumn, russet leaves, swept by past winds and heaps, and now stiffened together. I leaned against a gate and looked into an empty field where no sheep were feeding, where the short grass was nipped and blanched. It was a very grey day, a most opaque sky. Snow canopied all, flakes fell at intervals, which settled on the hard path and on the hoary lee without melting. I stood, a wretched child enough, whispering to myself over and over again, what shall I do? What shall I do? All at once I heard a clear voice call, Miss Jane, where are you? Come to lunch. It was Bessie, I knew well enough, but I did not stir. Her light step came tripping down the path. You naughty little thing, she said. Why don't you come when you are called? Bessie's presence, compared with the thoughts over which I had been brooding, seemed cheerful, even though, as usual, she was somewhat cross. The fact is, after my conflict with and victory over Mrs. Reed, I was not disposed to care much for the nursemaid's transiting anger, and I was disposed to bask in her youthful lightness of heart. I just put my two arms round her and said, Come, Bessie, don't scold. The action was more frank and fearless than any I was habituated to indulge in. Somehow it pleased her. You are a strange child, Miss Jane, she said, as she looked down at me. A little roving, solitary thing. And you're going to school, I suppose? I nodded. And won't you be sorry to leave poor Bessie? What does Bessie care for me? She's always scolding me. Because you're such a strange, frightened little thing. You should be bolder. What, to get more knocks? Nonsense. But you are rather put upon, that's certain. My mother said when she came to see me last week that she would not like a little one of her own to be in your place. Now come in. And I have some good news for you. I don't think you have, Bessie. Child, what do you mean? What sorrowful eyes you fix on me. Well, but Mrs. and the young ladies and Master John are going out to tea this afternoon. You shall have tea with me. I'll ask Cook to bake you a little cake, and then you will help me to look over your drawers, for I am soon to pack your trunk. Mrs. intends you to leave Gateshead in a day or two, and you shall choose what toys you like to take with you. Bessie, you must promise not to scold me any more till I go. Well, I will. But mind, you are a very good girl, and don't be afraid of me. Don't start when I chance to speak rather sharply. It's so provoking. I don't think I shall ever be afraid of you again, Bessie, because I've got used to you, and I shall soon have another set of people to dread. If you dread them, they'll dislike you. As you do, Bessie? I don't dislike you, miss. I believe I am fonder of you than of all the others. You don't show it. You little sharp thing. You've got quite a new way of talking. What makes you so venturesome and hardy? Well, I shall soon be away from you. And besides, I was going to say something about what had passed between me and Mrs. Reed. But on second thoughts, I considered it better to remain silent on that head. And so you're glad to leave me? Not at all, Bessie. Indeed, just now, I'm rather sorry. Just now, and rather, 
how coolly my little lady says it. I dare say now, if I were to ask you for a kiss, you wouldn't give it to me. You'd say you'd rather not. I'll kiss you and welcome. Bend your head down. Bessie stooped. We mutually embraced, and I followed her into the house quite comforted. That afternoon lapsed in peace and harmony, and in the evening, Bessie told me some of her most enchanting stories and sang me some of her sweetest songs. Even for me, life had its gleams of sunshine. <laughs>